Our mission is to discuss extraction, processing, business practices, and lessons learned with the established experts of the extraction process. This is Mission Supercritical, a service of Apex Supercritical, the leading CO2 extraction equipment manufacturer. Now, here to navigate our broadcast is a U.S. Navy veteran and the founder and president of Apex Supercritical. Andy Joseph. Okay, welcome to Mission Supercritical, an exclusive radio show that highlights the extraordinary individual success stories of Apex Supercritical's more than 500 customers operating in the cannabis industry. I'm your host, Andy Joseph, president and founder of Apex Supercritical, and I'd like to thank you for joining our very first show today. Our guest today is Dr. Jim Parco. He's the co-founder of Mesa Organics, a full-service dispensary serving Pueblo, Colorado, and features Dr. Parco's exclusive Purple Bees concentrates, which are sourced from state-licensed, locally-grown cannabis, and are manufactured, of course, using Apex Supercritical Extraction Technologies. Welcome to our inaugural show, Jim. Thanks, Andy. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for making the time today. I appreciate it. I'm excited about this. This is our first show, and uh, you know I think uh, this is going to be uh, a fun time. And I hope that uh, you enjoy it, and our listeners enjoy it as well. Well, it's going to be an honor as well, being the inaugural version. So we're looking forward to this. Right. We couldn't think of a better uh, better first customer to have on the show. So uh, let's uh, let's go ahead and get started. First off, Jim, I want to thank you for your service as a as a feder- fellow veteran. Um, hoping maybe you could just take a couple of seconds to tell us about what you did in the military, and more importantly, how did that experience translate to the endeavors that you're that you're going through right now in the cannabis industry? Well, sure. Thanks, Andy. And uh, also, likewise to you, I know you're a former Navy veteran. Uh, I was a poor kid, grew up on a farm. My uh, grandparents had immigrated to the United States at the turn of the 20th century, and they were vegetable farmers. Growing up, college was something that we either had to uh, get a scholarship for or pay for yourself. So uh, as most poor kids, uh, I just went to the military, and I ended up at the Air Force Academy. Uh, It was kind of a one-decision life. Uh, 24 years later, I retired. Uh, I ended up uh, taking on a a professorship at Colorado College, where I'm currently uh, uh, teaching uh, economics and business. And then uh, my wife and I decided when Colorado legalized back in 2012, we moved back to our family farm. Uh, we don't grow vegetables anymore, but we bought the commercial lot right next to uh, where my family's been for over 100 years. And we opened up Mesa Organics, where we have licenses to manufacture, grow, and sell adult-use retail cannabis. That's great. That's great. And did you did you find yourself in any kind of a conundrum with the uh, the military background and the and the you know the federal protections and, and kind of doing that and also on the on what is kind of the you know the skirts of federal legality with with cannabis? You ever have any conflicts there? You know, I, I it, it's a complicated issue when you look at what states have done that have legalized uh, Colorado being the first, and we're in Pueblo County, so uh, along with Denver, Pueblo County was the actual first county in the first state to uh, legalize uh, adult-use cannabis. Uh, I was a professor in 2012 when we legalized here in Colorado, and I'll be honest, until about three years ago, I had never seen a cannabis plant. I knew nothing about it. I had no interest. Uh, what we had an interest in is cleaning up the property that had been next to my family farm for you know generations. Uh, the building had been condemned. It had become a dump, and it was just the biggest blight uh, in our area. So my wife and I decided when we retired from the military that we were going to buy that building and do something with it just to you know, create the community revitalization. And the first thing on the list was adult bookstore. We thought, yeah, we're not doing that. And the next <laughs> thing it said cannabis. And you know, we looked at each other and thought, you know, never really even considered cannabis. Uh, so 
I thought, as any good professor does, you've got to do all your research before you make any choices. So I went into uh, El Paso County, about 60 miles north, medically. Uh, they did the same thing, grow, manufacture, and sell. And I asked the owner, I said, hey, I, I'd like a job. And let me be clear, I am going to likely open up a cannabis business across the street from you. Or if you hire me and let me work here for free for a few months, I'll do it in Pueblo. He said, you're hired. So I literally <laughs> took a sabbatical for my profession. And I did what we say in academia is an ethnography. You know, I was living amongst the natives, having conversations. But effectively, Andy, I became a janitor. I was mopping floors, washing buckets, trimming. But I was learning the business from the inside. And when I recognized how many assumptions that I had had about cannabis and legalization and how wrong I was, you know, it was a blind spot for me as a professor. Uh, and then, you know, looking at Colorado, it's part of our constitution uh, as every state that's legalized it. So, you know, when you've got a federal law that comes in conflict with a state law, that's pretty easy. The federal law is supreme. If the U.S. Constitution is in conflict with the state constitution, once again, that's easy. The U.S. Constitution is supreme. But when you have a state constitutional right that comes in conflict with the federal law, it's not so clear. And given the Cole memo put out in the Obama administration in 2012, uh, saying if you adhere to these eight tenets, you know, we're going to basically let you do it. In a sense, federal government has given us permission at the state level to operate compliantly and legally. Uh, so a long answer to basically say, no, I'm really not conflicted because it's a complicated situation, uh, but we're as compliant as anybody possibly could be. That's great. That's great. Now, when you're uh, when you're the janitor, do the, uh, the folks there say, Dr. Parco, get the broom and clean up? Oh, no, no, no. I, I, you walk in. If they thought I was observing them or I was you know, a professor, they would have acted differently. Yeah. I was some old guy that just needed a job. So they called me Jim and I was basically, you know, cleaning toilets. And, you know, I was the lowest guy in the totem pole in the organization, which is a fascinating place to be because you don't threaten anybody. Nobody really suspects that you're watching them. And I could have the kinds of natural conversations to truly learn this industry from the inside. And it took about four months. And at that point, I realized not only is this something that we could do, it was something I actually wanted to do. Because if I had such bad assumptions about what cannabis legalization meant, that meant a lot of people in our age group, Andy, and above us probably had the same poor assumptions. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's a that's some that's some really good perspective. I'm not sure I could bring myself to do that, uh, but it's uh, it's fantastic. Um, so you know, you you went through this learning curve and you got yourself to the point where where you and and your wife were comfortable with with moving forward into the cannabis. But it sounds like there might have been a little bit of uh, hesitation on your your neighbors and maybe the local municipality. Can you talk about how that uh, how that affected you? And, and you know, now that the dust has settled, more importantly, do you think it was worth it? So yeah, a couple of questions. So let's start about uh, the animosity. Uh, I'll say up front, you know, my family, my extended family lives right in this area. So our neighbors, our business, it's us. Uh, and I had watched what had happened in other municipalities where people decide they want to get licensed in the cannabis industry. And these are the early days in Colorado. They buy an abandoned piece of property, which this was. They you know, put up the little sign. Here's going to be a hearing. Nobody sees it. They have a hearing. Nobody goes. But once people figure out you got licensed and they felt like you pulled the wool over their eyes, they get really upset and they were problematic. So my wife and I took a very transparent and different approach before we even applied for licensing. I sent a letter to everybody within a half mile of our facility and I said, look, we're thinking about buying this land and opening up it as a cannabis uh, outlet. We'd like to have a community conversation. And we held this meeting on the land right next door that we owned. Oh, Andy, 
uh, on that day, 70 people showed up, people with picket <laughs> signs. They called the press, and it was fascinating. I just took an absolute beating. But I kind of explained to everybody, look, we're not asking your permission. This is now a, a right that we have to get licensed, and if we buy this piece of property, our question is what can we do to make this more tenable? And like us, so many people just so, thought the worst and made all kinds of bad assumptions. But we had that conversation. Uh, we had our hearing you know, a couple months later, usually about 15 people showed up at hearings. For our hearing, we had 170. It took four hours. Uh, we were passed unanimously, but there was so much controversy in these early days. But my wife and I, and I think this is part of our military training, you know, you are forthrightly honest. You are transparent, and you take on issues head on. Uh, and we think, in retrospect, probably one of the smartest things we did, because we recognized there was a lot of contention. But you're going to deal with it one way or the other as a cannabis business owner. You better do it at the onset and build the trust of the people. And I can say now, three years later, uh, we don't have any issues whatsoever. It's really a good situation that we've created for ourselves. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, and uh, you know, I think everybody in the cannabis industry kind of has a, a similar story where they, they you know, went through the trials and tribulations and, and kind of the, the, the misunderstood elements of it. Yeah, so we, we went through something similar here in, in, uh, in Johnstown, Ohio, as Apex Supercritical, and, and had a council member actually come out and say half to two-thirds of the community really doesn't like what we're doing here. But in reality, I've only had one person actually approach me and say, hey, we don't like this. And, you know, the numbers just don't seem to match up. Um, do you find yourself in a similar situation where you've got, you know, one or two holdouts, but mostly everybody is, is supportive? So I've got a, a term that I use for this group of people. I call them cave people, where cave is an acronym for citizens against virtually everything. And every, <laughs> every community's got a group of cave people, uh, most notably in Pueblo last year. Uh, in the middle of the summer, we had our local group of cave people in Pueblo County came forth and they actually petitioned and got an initiative on the ballot to fully repeal cannabis legalization for commercial purposes in Pueblo County. So whereas we were the first county to legalize in the country, we were also the first county this prohibitionist vote. Uh, and I'll tell you, we were staring down the barrel of a gun because had that initiative passed, it was Proposition 200, uh, it would have completely uh, taken all of our licenses away 12 months later. So I stepped forward as our campaign spokesman, and there were probably about uh, 10 to 15 of us in the industry that led the campaign. But I shut my uh, manufacturing company down, and we became a political action firm, and my guys knocked on 20,000 doors having conversations with individual citizens. Now, from their perspective, I didn't disagree with them. Their argument and I think this is pertinent to every community in the country that's dealing with the legalization issue. They said, look, we voted for cannabis legalization at the state level, and that was fine. But we never had a chance to talk about legalization in our backyard. We want to put it to a vote. And when I heard that, I thought, you know what? That's actually a fair argument. Uh, here in Colorado, of the 64 counties we have, we only have 22 counties which have been legalized. But in every single county, Legalization happened by edict of county commissioners, city council members, supervisors, mayors. So this was the first time the people got to vote about legalization in their backyard. Uh, and we did a lot of polling, and we, we knew from the get-go that we had a pretty commanding position. Uh, but when it came down to it on election night in 2016, 83,000 people were sent ballots in Pueblo County. Uh, 3,500 people did not vote for president. And in Pueblo County, uh, Donald Trump 
won the uh, presidential vote. However, on Proposition 200 of the 83,000, only 1,500 people did not vote on the cannabis question. And we actually uh, defeated the proposition by 58 um, 42 margin, uh, which was fascinating to me. It showed me this is not a right, left, red, blue, Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal issue. This is really an issue that divides on generational lines. And when you find people that are north of 40, they tend to have negative perceptions of legalization. Under 40 tend to be more positive. But the real interesting category were women ages 40 to 70. And we scratched our head and it made sense. These are women that are rearing children that want their kids to grow up in a drug-free environment, but they also want their kids to grow up in a robust economic environment. So they're conflicted. And uh, as we've had those conversations, you know, looking now down three years down the road, uh, we've created you know, more than 1,400 jobs. We're bringing in $3.5 million a year uh, into a community with an $85 million budget. And for the most part, we've had no issues. So it really has been the biggest story is no story at all. Oh, that's great, Jim. Thanks for that. Uh, thanks for that background. And, and uh, some congratulations on your success. Sounds like you've had a lot of converts. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk uh, deep dive with Dr. Jim Parco about extraction. We'll regroup for more Mission Supercritical after we hear from our sponsors. Strainwise Consulting is the most sought-after consulting company for cannabis business applications and management contracts. We consulted on the first recreational license in the world and have had an over 95% success rate on applications submitted. The industry is growing at such an exponential rate that building a powerful and lasting cannabis business is a number one priority. Here's Strainwise's Sean Eubanks. In our first five years, we branded and supported nine medical and recreational marijuana dispensaries and approximately 160,000 square feet of sophisticated and efficient product cultivation. Strainwise Consulting has the experience and expertise to guide you through the process. The next generation of vaporizers has arrived. Vuber vaporizers are blazing the way with unparalleled technology for oil, concentrate, or dry flower pens. Providing unsurpassed customer service and expert craftsmanship, Vuber vaporizers use cutting-edge technology, providing a power-packed, smoother vapor with a lifetime guarantee. Experience vaporizing the way it was meant to be. The Vuber way. Time to extract more knowledge on Mission Supercritical. Only on CannabisRadio.com. All right, welcome back to Mission Supercritical. Today on the show, we've got Dr. Jim Parco. Jim, you've been able to give us some great color on how you got to, into the cannabis industry and some of the trials and tribulations you had with a local municipality. But today, or now after a second half, we're going to talk deep dive and about extraction. So if you wouldn't mind, just give us a, a quick, real high-level overview of, of, of Purple Bees, uh, the products that you make, and then we'll talk about how you make them and the extraction processes and methods. Sure. So we actually have three licenses. Uh, we have a license to manufacture, a license to grow, and a license to sell. So we're one of the few businesses in Colorado that are completely vertically integrated, uh, and we're the quintessential mom-and-pop shop. It's my wife and I, and we have eight employees, uh, but we kind of do everything. Our grow is very, very small. We've got a very small store. Uh, however, we are the closest adult-use retail cannabis store to the Gulf of Mexico and the Atlantic Ocean. So even though we're a couple hours inside the Colorado border, uh, we do get a lot of visitors that are tourists from outside the state. And one of the things realized early on is that as more and more uh, municipalities and states legalized, there were going to be more and more stores. We had to think of ways uh, to make sure we could maintain our business model. We realized that manufacturing 
uh, was the future. Uh, so what we had decided to do is to you know start doing uh, uh, cannabis extraction. And had, I hadn't seen a plant. I knew nothing about extraction. But what I did see is everybody in the industry were using hydrocarbons, butane, propane. And everybody I talked to had a near-death experience during the process. And we realized we were not going to do that. So when we founded Purple Bees, we decided we were going to be pure CO2, no hydrocarbons, uh, no additives, no propylene glycol, no cutting agents. And we were going to stick to just a few products. You know, our core product is what we call a CO2 sap. Uh, it's probably the kissing cousin to live resin, except you're using CO2 technology to process it. And then we'll make uh, vape oil cartridges. Uh, we have a terp wax where we actually can reinfuse the terpenes from the plant into the plant waxes that we remove. Uh, and those are some core products. And then we also make distillates. Uh, we're purple bees, so we have a product we call THC Honey, which is an 80 to 90% uh, potency uh, extract reinfused with terpenes. Uh, and that's primarily what we actually do. And then, of course, we sell a lot of uh, manufacturer uh, extract to other manufacturers in the industry. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So you've uh, you've affectionately named a couple of your Apex supercritical extraction systems. Can you uh, share their, their names with us? Yeah, Andy, I hate to criticize you on the air, but you guys are a bunch of engineers, and all of the names for your systems, it, it, it's great for technical people, but when we're having conversations, uh, so we started with uh, a 1500 5L, and for the listeners out there, the first number is the uh, PSI, the pressure at which the system operates, and then the second is the size of the extraction vessel, so our 1500 5L is uh, a 1500 PSI system that uh, extracts five liters of cannabis at a time, which is about 1,000 to 1,200 grams. Uh, it was funny because I bought that machine and then I bought a second Apex machine, which was a 5,000 20L by 5L. It's a mouthful, Andy. Uh, and that's a 5,000 PSI machine that actually had 25 uh, liters of extraction capacity. And when we got these, I bought them on the uh, aftermarket, uh, bought them used, and we brought them into our facility. And what I fell in love with Apex is because I would pick up the phone. You guys knew I didn't buy these machines from you, but you treated me as if I was a paying customer. And then this uh, last year, we bought our third Apex extractor. We actually bought this from you guys, and it was the 5,020L by 20L. Uh, and I remember uh, the director of sales called and said, hey, just wanted to follow up. What would you think? And I said, you know, I'll be honest, Nick, I'm a little disappointed. And he was shocked. He said, what's wrong, Jim? I said, you know, I finally gave you all this money for a new extractor and you guys treat me the same way. And he laughed. But what we really <laughs> enjoyed about it is the, the kind of the partnership that you guys allowed us to uh, form as a, a mom and pop startup in helping us grow to where we are today. But getting back to the question you asked, Andy, is the names. Since these are mouthfuls, uh, we call our 1505L the dinosaur. We call our uh, 5,020 L by 5L or uh, 5L our workhorse, and then we lovingly refer to the 5,020 L by 20L as the beast uh, because that thing lives up to its name every single day. That's uh, that's fantastic. Now it uh, hurts me a little to know that uh, you called the the 1505 L the dinosaur. That's how that was our first platform, uh, and actually has the old uh, gas booster with the air compressor. You you find oh, it, yourself still it, using it? It does. Oh, we use it every day. And I'll tell you what, it's not me that named it the dinosaur. It was actually your guys. You had a tech <laughs> that you guys had hired, uh, you know, probably a year and a half, two years ago. And this was his very first uh, service call. And I had him come down. We had just gotten the workhorse and put it down. I just wanted to kind of come down and check everything else. So at the time, you had an engineer in Colorado that came down with this young tech. And he walks in and he says, oh, my God. 
I've never seen a system this old. This thing's a dinosaur. <laughs> and I'm sitting kind of chuckling because I'm thinking any kind of industrial manufacturing, when you buy a piece of equipment, it'll be good for 40 years. Here's a machine that's literally 38 months old, and they're calling it a dinosaur. So it was kind of an inside joke. But yeah, what I love about that machine, Andy, it does have the gas booster, and it had all the manual valves. But you know, I tell my guys when I hire them, just because you're standing in a garage does not make you a car. Just because you have an extractor in front of you and you think you can go ahead and operate it, there's an art to it. There's a craft, and it takes time to develop. But I don't let any of my guys touch any of our automated machines until they spend at least four months on this dinosaur because it's like the old pipe organ. They're using both hands. You know, they've got to, they've got to watch the gauges. They've got to listen to the sound the booster pump is making. But they have to understand art of extraction, the flow, the operation of the system, and they've got to be able to diagnose issues because it's a piece of machinery. Things are going to happen. Uh, we love this little dinosaur because we almost never have trouble with it. Uh, but after four months, <clears throat> then I move them up to the workhorse. Uh, it turns out we bought these two machines, the workhorse and the dinosaur. I, it was probably a year apart from each other. But when I called uh, Apex and got the serial number, they were one digit off. Turns out you made them at the same exact week uh, and they were in two parts of the country. But what was interesting, whoever had the workhorse before me had retrofitted it with all the new LED or the LCD panel, the automatic pneumatic valves. <clears throat> so it was basically a state-of-the-art piece of technology. Uh, and I'll tell you, it doesn't matter whether I'm using the dinosaur, the workhorse, or the beast. And I don't care how old they are. Every single one performs magnificently every single day. Uh, that's that's fantastic. Thanks for the, uh, the 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 kind words there. We certainly appreciate it. And we appreciate you being a customer. And uh, you know we've we've got a manual system here that we actually we call Manny. Uh, and that's the very first system that any of our uh, future technicians will learn. Even, we even put through some of our production guys on that piece of equipment so they get an idea of what it is. But, uh, you know, I want to get your opinion. So we, we have a uh, similar policy here when we hire on new employees, uh, whether it's our technicians or even some of our production guys. Where we've got a manual system that, uh, that we call Manny, and we'll make them run that system first before they're allowed to do anything else with the rest of them. But I've got another customer that uh, says something to us that I think you'll probably agree with, and that's you know, if you if you had the choice between get another manual system or automatic system, would you do it? And they say, I love the manual systems, but I'd never buy another one. Would you agree with that? Uh, I need one. Uh, again, like anything else, the technology that you guys have evolved to, uh, it's state of the art. I mean, it's like flying a 747. You get in, you hit a few buttons, autopilot, the thing goes. The problem is. When the fit hits the shan, and it typically does at the worst opportune time, right? I mean, you need to have your guys with that knowledge of exactly what do we need to do to diagnose a problem that nine times out of ten we've induced. So having had that one manual system for training, absolutely critical in my opinion. Uh, but yes, I just love the automation that you guys have come forth with. So yeah, uh, I would just want one. Right, right. No, that's great. All right, Jim. So you're uh, you're in a unique position in that you've got the ability to run what we term both subcritical and supercritical with the pieces of equipment that you've got. Uh, which one do you like better, sub subcritical or supercritical, and why? Well, this is not going to be a good answer, uh, but both. And you know, again, you guys have provided us a tool that is so versatile. Uh, our success has really been in figuring out how to use these tools in ways that nobody else is using them right now. So we operate back and forth between sub and supercritical, depending on the types of products and also the phases of the run. But 
in employing some of the technologies that we've developed internally, we now can pull out 100% of the extractable cannabinoids and terpenoids out of the plant material and do so in a way that preserves that wonderful bright yellow color uh, that everybody desires. Uh, so at the end of the day, uh, I think I have to say I could not do it without sub. I could not do it without supercritical. I need both. And your machines allow us to do so. Oh, that's that's great. And uh, you know, going back, uh, going back to the kind of the the beast and the workhorse, both of those systems being automated. Uh, you know, do you, do you find yourself uh, being able to to have to spend a lot of time with new employees and and training them on the automation, um, or you know, once they've got a feel for the manual system, they they pick it up pretty quick. Uh, it's it's again, these are difficult tasks, and I'm finding that not everybody I hire has the capability. It's very similar to flying. You know, again, coming from an Air Force background, it, it, a lot of flying metaphors, but it very much is like sitting in a cockpit of an aircraft. And, you know, not everybody has the gift of flight where you grab that joystick and, you know, the plane's part of your body. Other people really struggle to fly. Same thing with extraction. The, the thing I tell my new employees is you've got to relax. Watch the pressures. Slow is fast. Nothing good in this industry happens fast. Uh, but, you know, there's a, a natural talent uh, that's, you know, people have and either the, you can you can extract or you can't extract but the people that don't have the talent it's like teaching somebody to play the piano that just has no musical air jim thanks for that feedback that was uh, that was great and you know i i think your answer on subcritical versus supercritical is fantastic because there's there's a place and time for each one of those and it really depends on what your end product is going to be jim we're going to take a quick commercial break here and when we come back we're going to keep diving further into the extraction technology we'll regroup for more mission supercritical after we hear from our sponsors Introducing 420 Cloud, ignited by MSIG, one of the fastest growing social apps around. The only app you'll need for all things cannabis. Find the latest cannabis news, videos, and stories, ranging from business and tech to sports and medicine. Start your career in cannabis by seeking, identifying, and applying for jobs through our expansive listings. For businesses, 420cloud.com features a full-scale cross-channel network, monetizing high traffic for big data conversion and analytics. Download 420 Cloud now from the iTunes Store or Google Play. MSIG.com is a publicly listed company on the OTC. Symbol MCIG. Cannabis concentrates have been around for hundreds of centuries. In 19th century America, extracts mixed with other herbs were sold as a miracle cure. Now, Apex Supercritical has elevated the science of extraction into the 21st century. Apex Supercritical is the leader in CO2 extraction, which is the cleanest, safest, and purest way to extract plant oils. ROI in as little as three weeks. Our cost-effective systems are fully automated with an industry-leading three-year warranty. And if we don't have your system in stock, we can build one in as little as four weeks. Bringing CO2 extraction to the masses. Learn more at apeksupercritical.com. Four-week build excludes high production systems. Time to extract more knowledge on Mission Supercritical. Only on CannabisRadio.com. Okay, welcome back to Mission Supercritical. Again, we've got Dr. Jim Parco on the line, the founder of Mesa Organics and Purple Bees Concentrates. Jim, we were talking about subcritical versus supercritical there for a minute. When you move into secondary processing, you had mentioned earlier in the show that you dis- you do distillation. Do you find that subcritical versus supercritical uh, works better in the in the distilling process? So when we get to the distillation process, we actually use a different set of equipment. Uh, of course, if you're going to make oil, you're going to have to remove the lipids uh, from the raw extract. So that requires uh, an ethanol refinement processing, which is pretty common in the industry. And then once you have that oil, you can further fractionate that 
and you know remove the rest of the lipids out and then actually create the cannabinoid distillate. So at the end, we typically have terpenes separated from the cannabinoids, separated from the oils and the lipids in the uh, plant. And uh, again, we have four or five other steps using other equipment to actually facilitate that end product. Okay, great, great. And have you found that, that subcritical oils versus supercritical oils uh, perform better or worse in the distillation process? Uh how do I say this? I've got some of the largest, most successful extraction companies in the state of Colorado buying extract from us because they cannot produce what we produce. Uh, the, the level of quality, uh, the potency, the, you know, the, the yields that we're getting, people can't believe we're CO2 extractors because most of the people uh, in the industry, I'll say 95% use butane and propane. Of the 5% that use other methods, the, the vast majority are CO2 extractors. But in my opinion, all of the others tend to use the wrong equipment and their final output is nowhere near ours. Uh, so you know, we're we could not be happier with what your equipment actually does for us because it's a specialized tool that does something that right now nobody else in the market can do, at least that which we can find. Great, Jim. Congratulations on that success. I understand recently here that you've also started some uh, consulting services as well. How did you uh, how do you do the consulting and how do you balance that uh, with the intellectual property that you've got uh, with with Purplebees and still help your consulting customers out? Well, and again, we don't really consultants, uh, but I'm finding so many people are coming to us asking for help. And I feel sorry for them because I was in the same situation three years ago and there was nobody else out there that was willing to help me except Apex. So, you know, kind of paying it back, you know, we're happy to bring people in our facility that, uh, you know, have actually qualified, you know, right before they're out of equipment. Uh, if they're serious, you know, we'll certainly talk to them. Uh, and then we license our technology, but you know, like anything else, you know, when somebody comes into our facility, you know, it's the times, it's the temperatures, it's the pressures, you know, it's the durations, it's the phasing. There's so much to master to make sure you get it just right because one little thing goes wrong, you can ruin your entire batch. And let me tell you, we've ruined lots of batches. In fact, that's part of our company culture. We celebrate full speed mistakes. And I tell my guys, they should be screwing around at least 10 to 20% a day. Uh, because if they're screwing around and trying to make new things, we're going to fail most of the time. But once in a while, we don't fail, which has kind of been the secret to you know our success, if you will. Uh, and you know, being a professor, I do get an awful lot of calls. And you know, I've done consulting my whole life in an academic capacity, but I'm seeing at this point there's a strong demand for people who really want to you know move into the new world of extraction, particularly CO2, which is going to be the dominant form. I have no doubt 10 years from now because there are no residual solvents. It's safe. It won't blow up on you. Uh, we do see studies coming out as recently as last week of when you combust hydrocarbons, specifically isobutane above 900 degrees, uh, they do believe it's a carcinogen. And I think at some point, public safety is going to determine that we have to stop doing hydrocarbon extractions. Uh, so as this market continues to grow uh, and we have an expertise in what we're doing, we're uh, talking to more and more people to help them be successful in their own businesses. And we're just glad to be a partner with Apex. That's great. That's great. What recommendations would you have for somebody who's looking to, to get into the extraction and or concentration world when it comes to buying extraction? It's typically the most expensive piece of equipment and so a lot of times the first purchase. What kind of questions would you recommend a, a, a potential customer or potential extraction company make? 
I, I give them a couple pieces of advice. And this advice that I would give any potential customer, it would be the same advice I would give my students in my undergraduate classes that I teach. Uh, on the very first day of class, I tell people, believe nothing I'm telling you. Yeah, I'm the teacher. But you need to be skeptical of everybody and everything all the time, including me. You've got to look at the data and judge for yourself. And I tell people that come through our facility, you know, don't take my word for it. I'm talking about my experience. I chose other systems. And I think people need to collect their own data. But they've got to be diligent, deliberate, and they've got to be just very aware that this is a tremendous investment. But once you buy the equipment, you got to really take the time to learn how to operate this equipment. Yes, it's automated, but I have seen so many people you know, buy extractors and then put them on the market, and God bless them because I go out and I buy them because I'll walk up, they'll say, yeah, the thing doesn't work. And I just kind of smiled to myself thinking, uh-huh, it does work. You just don't know how to do it because if you try to be everything to everybody, you end up being nothing to anyone. And so if somebody's going to get into extraction, it's different than manufacturing. I see so many companies that want to manufacture uh, edibles, chocolate bars, gummy bears, you know, things of that nature. And they're candy makers. And they think, well, we'll just vertically integrate and throw an extraction. Uh, it's not that simple. Very different skill set requires different types of employees with different skills. Uh, I would just advise people, figure out what your core competency is, develop your core products around that, and stick to that carefully and guard it. But if you try to do too much, you will fail. Great, great. Jim, we, uh, we're running out of time here today, but I uh, wanted to give you an opportunity. If somebody wanted to contact you and, and uh, get some con- consulting or, or even just ask you about your experiences with Apex, what's the best way to contact you? I'm about the easiest guy to find on Google. You could type Jim Parco, P-A-R-C-O, marijuana in Google. Uh, and you could, it, that's not hard to come up with a way to get a hold of me. I am a professor at Colorado College. Uh, you can look at parco.cc, uh, or you can visit our website for Purple Bees. It's purplebees.com, uh, and there's a way to contact us, reach out, uh, and I welcome any conversation with anybody that's getting into the industry because this is an amazing opportunity that I don't think we've seen since the birth of the Internet and, uh, you know, a lot of people are hesitant right now because there's a lot of risk. And you, people have to just remember that risk and return are inextricably linked. Uh, you can't get more returns without taking on more risk. Uh, there's a great deal of risk in the industry right now. And I think people need to be mindful that uh, it is federally illegal. And in the states that have uh, legalized medical or adult use, uh, we're still not out of the woods yet. And most important, I tell my employees, we are not in the cannabis business. We're in the compliance business. And if we do our jobs well, we sell cannabis. But first and foremost, we follow all the rules. And I think as we go forward yep. in this legalization it's effort, a, it, we need to be mindful of that. Jim, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I've said to multiple people, this is an entrepreneur's dream right now, the cannabis industry. You know, explosive growth opportunities, tons of tons of money uh, coming into the industry, and a position where the federal illegality creates just enough risk to scare away the big guys. And I think that's what's led to the success of Apex Supercritical and I think the success of your company as well. So, Jim, we're out of time today. I appreciate you coming on to the show and look forward to everyone at the next Mission Supercritical. This was our inaugural show. Jim, I hope you had a good time and appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Andy. I really did. And best of luck to you and everybody out there. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com.
Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.